there's a classic SNL skit with Chris Farley actually, where he's uh, he's given like coffee crystals instead of real coffee, and like it, it's a you know secretly filmed uh, footage of him as a customer, and then you know when he when it's revealed to him that it was actually fake coffee, he just like flies into a rage and just like goes way out of control. Sir, do you realize that you are not drinking regular coffee, but Colombian decaffeinated coffee crystals? What? I said you're drinking Colombian decaf coffee crystals. It's a really funny skit. I'd like to think that, you know, if that happened to me, I, I would be I would be polite about it, but I would definitely harbor contempt in my heart uh, for someone who uh, said that they were offering me meat, but then just gave me like a, a veggie burger. Hey guys, this is Christine Roussel. I'm a DC correspondent for Catholic News Agency. And today, I'm about to eat my very first Burger King Whopper, because what better way to kick off the season of Lent? I'm here in Washington with D.C. senior correspondent Matt Hadro. Matt and I are going to do a blind, side-by-side taste test of Burger King's Whopper and Impossible Whopper. And we'll talk about the ethics of eating things like the Impossible Burger on Fridays during Lent or during other penitential periods. The Impossible Burger is one of two faux meat products produced by the company Impossible Foods. Impossible burgers are made from the same ingredients as a typical beef burger, proteins, flavors, fats, and binders, but the ingredients for an Impossible burger come from plants, like soy and potatoes. But before we place our orders, we have a couple more stories for you about meat. We'll hear from author Mary Eberstad about the connection between her vegetarianism and her pro-life ethic, and then we'll take a look into the lives of a community of Benedictine nuns who run a cattle ranch in northern Colorado. You're listening to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. I'm Christine Roussel, and I'll be your host this week. Back in 1997, the animal rights activist group People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, or PETA, launched a multi-million dollar campaign declaring Jesus was a vegetarian. In the Christian tradition, what we have is a Jesus who is the Prince of Peace. And it's important to remember where that comes from. It comes from the prophet Isaiah. If we read Isaiah 11, the holy mountain is filled with the knowledge of the Lord, where even the lion lies down with the lamb, and there is no bloodshed whatsoever. Sure, Jesus divided the loaves and the fishes in the Gospel of John. But, according to Peta, the fish were actually symbolic. Jesus participated in the Passover supper, but... According to PETA, he didn't eat the lamb. This campaign never really went away. Today, PETA has an entire Christian outreach division called Lambs. They even named Pope Francis their 2015 Person of the Year. We all understand that it's unchristian to hurt an animal, but we suspend reality when we sit down to eat. We want some chicken nuggets, you know, and it's killing us, and it's destroying the environment, and it's patently immoral whatever your faith background. But getting back to their claims about Jesus, is there really any evidence to support what Peter is saying? Was Jesus really a vegetarian? We were pretty sure the apostles and Jesus at least ate fish. And even Pope Francis, the 2015 PETA Person of the Year, seems to have no problem with eating meat. 
his favorite restaurant in Rome is rumored to be an Argentine steakhouse. So clearly, there is not a moral imperative demanded by religion here. By the way, this is Mary Eberstadt. I am an author and essayist, and I'm a senior fellow at the Faith and Reason Institute in Washington, D.C. Though Mary doesn't think Jesus was a vegetarian, Mary is vegetarian. And honestly, if she could, she'd be vegan. If I lived by myself and for myself, I'm sure I would be vegan. But I live in a robust household, uh, most of it peopled by carnivores. And that's not something I hold against them, but it does make it impossible to put out vegan dinners 24-7. Again, Mary isn't vegetarian because she thinks Jesus was a vegetarian. She also doesn't think that everyone else should be vegetarian. For her... I realized it could be a unique form of pro-life witness. We live in a time of abortion on demand in which millions and millions of lives have been snuffed out in this cavalier way. For people who grow up in this regimen, as we know, in the secular world, many of them don't understand pro-life arguments at all. They think this regime of abortion on demand is just the way things are supposed to be. And this, I think, is where vegetarianism can reach people in a way that talking to them about, say, Catholic dogma does not. Mary described her vegetarianism as a kind of bargaining chip that gives her access to the secular world. To be vegetarian is to say, I draw the line at certain practices I don't want to be part of certain kinds of industrial farming. I don't want to be part of uh, this particular violence against animals. And then? Look, when we talk about the casual trashing of life and not wanting to be part of the casual trashing of life, we're actually living up to that principle by the witness of our vegetarianism. So what do you think we feel about the destruction of the human fetus? In the 10-plus years she's been vegetarian, Mary said she's had countless conversations with secular vegetarians and vegans about the connection between being pro-animal and pro-life. But fundamentally, what I come back to is the idea that wanton cruelty is wrong. Treating living beings as if they are things is wrong. And if that is true in the case of animals with whom we share the earth, but don't share, you know, the same species, how much truer is it of us when we look at our own species? It's really great that you feel empathy for the creatures of the earth. All I'm asking you to do is expand that empathy and apply it to your own species. So don't limit it to weeping for the elephants or Uh, the cheetahs or endangered animals or whatever it might be, don't limit your empathy to uh, farm animals that are part of an industrial cycle of slaughter. Just take that same empathy and apply it to your own kind. And once you connect the dots that way, I find people are more receptive uh, than we typically think them to be to the pro-life message. Mary said her decision to cut out meat from her life wasn't consciously inspired by her Catholic faith. Instead, she found inspiration, in part, 
from the 20th century Russian author Leo Tolstoy. Tolstoy once visited a slaughterhouse as a journalist. He walked away a vegetarian. Mary said Tolstoy's writing about the slaughterhouse resonated with her, specifically one point he made. Once we see these things, we can't pretend we don't know them. And that to me was very reminiscent of the pro-life cause. Once we see these aborted fetuses, we can't pretend we don't know this stuff. Catholics, of course, have no moral obligation to be vegetarian, but... It's incumbent on all of us to think about how to push back against the culture of death. Vegetarianism might be one way of doing it. Uh, There are other kinds of pro-life witness. There's also the service, the witness of service, getting involved in the lives of kids, especially who are part of the throwaway culture um, that has grown up around the culture of death. So I think we always have to be on the lookout for what we might do. For me, vegetarianism is one of those things I might do. To be indifferent to the wanton trashing of life is problematic. And we see this, we see the way abortion has coarsened our culture. And maybe that should make us a little more alert for other practices that coarsen our culture, you know, without meaning to. But again, treating living creatures as if they are things is one step on a slippery slope. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Jonah McKeown. After the break, we'll head to northern Colorado to meet some Benedictines who run their own cattle ranch. And the moment you've all been waiting for. Matt and I will get to our taste test of the Impossible Whopper. We'll be right back. We get it. You read a lot of news. Uh, You read a lot of church news, and probably you want to talk about it. But probably not a lot of people want to nerd out with you about church news each week. But we do. If you want an inside Catholic conversation about the life of the church from a Catholic perspective, we're here for you with a podcast called CNA Editor's Desk. Every week, Ed and I sit down together to talk about the most important Catholic news of the week. We offer our analysis and opinions. And we talk about how the news even helps us in our call to become holy. And we play games because, yes, we are here to amuse you. So if you like Catholic News Agency's coverage of Catholic news around the world, you're going to love CNA Editor's Desk. Each week, we will break down the stories you want to talk about. If you're listening to CNA Newsroom right now on your phone's podcast app, Open that app right now and search for CNA Editor's Desk. Then hit the subscribe button so you will never miss an episode when it drops each and every Friday. And now, back to the episode. In his rule, St. Benedict instructs his monks largely to abstain from meat. Chapter 39 reads, And let all abstain entirely from the eating of the flesh of quadrupeds altogether, as in cows, or pigs, or any animal with four legs. 
St. Benedict makes an exception only for monks who are weak or sick. Fast forward a little more than 1,500 years. Few Benedictine communities strictly observe this directive from St. Benedict's rule. Trappists and Cistercians do, but the majority of Benedictine monks today abstain from meat only on certain days or during certain seasons, but not perpetually. In northern Colorado, just a few minutes' drive from the Wyoming state line, lives a community of Benedictine nuns who eat meat, more specifically beef, regularly. They actually make their living off of it. So that sometimes comes up, like, how, how come you have a cattle ranch if you're Benedictine? And Benedict says, don't eat meat. He also talks about, in the rule, the need to really adjust his rule based on circumstances. And so for us here in northern Colorado, obviously there's not a lot of fish, there's not a great, you know, other sources of protein, but it's perfect country for beef ranching. The Abbey of St. Walburga is home to 24 contemplative Benedictine nuns and a herd of 100 cattle. But we have a little bit of menagerie <laughs> of other animals as well. Like chickens that produce eggs for the community, some milk cows. We have a couple of water buffaloes. Those are our, our strangest animal. A few llamas to guard the cattle. Um, and dogs and cats <laughs> and um, horses as well. We started ranching as soon as we came to Colorado in the 1930s. This is Sister Maria Gertrude, by the way. She manages the ranch at Walburga. She said Walburga originated from a monastery in Germany. The community was founded and sent to the U.S. just as Hitler was coming to power. We were founded to be kind of uh, a refuge if the sisters in Germany needed to flee the country. But before they could leave Germany, they needed some land in the U.S. The story goes that there were some monks in the area at the time who had had this ranch land near Boulder, and it was unfarmable. Like, the monks could not do anything with it. And so when um, the German superior contacted the monks looking for some land that they could make a foundation on, they said, well, sure, you can have this. It's, it's, you know, it's no good. The nuns managed to farm the land, scraping together what little knowledge they had of farming back home in Germany. And they set up a dairy farm. Eventually, they switched to beef farming because it's more simple. And that works well for us here because in northern Colorado, the climate and the grass and things are really suitable for beef cattle. The nuns spent about six decades on that land. In the 1990s, they decided it was time to move further from their ever-expanding neighbor, the city of Boulder. We needed to move to a quieter place that would be more conducive to our religious life. They were donated land in northern Colorado, outside the town of Virginia Dale. The nuns moved to the property in 1997, and they've been there ever since. Daily life at Walburga is filled with prayer. The nuns typically rise just after four and begin their day with the divine office, Lexio Divina, and Mass, all before eight. They have two work periods, one in the morning and one in the afternoon, during which most of the nuns work on the ranch. We have a couple of volunteers that come regularly that help us um, quite a bit, but we, um, we do everything ourselves, the sisters do it ourselves, from you know helping harvest the hay to calving the mother cows. Uh, we do all of that ourselves though some nuns are unable to work on the ranch because of the physical requirements. Sister Maria started working on the ranch immediately after she entered the community 15 years ago. She had no prior experience with farming or ranching, and she said that's the case with the majority of the nuns at Walburga. You know, the saints talk about how they could do something that everyone could tell it wasn't them, it was God working through them, and I feel like the farm for me is really an experience of that because 
it's not something I knew how to do at all when I first entered. It's not something that I feel like I have a lot of natural talent for in a lot of ways. We learn a lot of the technique just from each other. I learned from the sister who who was farm manager when I first entered, and she learned from the sisters before her. So we kind of pass on that knowledge from one to another. But it's not like any of us, you know, grew up on farms. I don't think any of us did, and we don't come to the monastery knowing about it. You know, it's something we just kind of learn from experience and learn how to do from each other. The nuns change out of their full black habits for the chores on the ranch. We do run a working ranch, so we use tractor equipment um, and heavy machinery, and we work with cattle, which can be, animals can be affected by, like, flapping fabric and things. Um, They can sometimes become dangerous if they're frightened. It's a safety thing, but it's also a modesty thing. Because you're climbing and running and, you know, going through barbed wire fences and things. We wear a veil on our head, always, and then we wear, like, farm clothes that are suitable for monastic life, so, like, we wear pants, but we make sure that they're, like, modest. And we have kind of a dress code on the farm, so we wear, like, a specific shirt. So, like, we're not wearing our full black habit, but we're still distinctively visible. We're still, we still look like nuns because we have our veils and things. Sister Maria said they also maintain a sense of prayer during their work on the ranch. One of the things that's important for us as Benedictines is that there's not a sharp separation between prayer and work. Our work is our prayer, and our prayer is our work. We have it as, as kind of the goal to always be in the presence of God, like St. Benedict calls us to in the rule, to always be in the presence of God and not to ever be not praying, um, even if I'm not aware specifically while I'm milking cows or mucking sheds or whatever. I'm not necessarily always specifically praying, but my heart is still keeping vigil. The Benedictines at Walburga produce an average of 18,000 pounds of grass-fed beef each year. We do very little advertising. People just kind of hear about our beef through word of mouth, mostly, and um, we sell out every year. Sister Maria suspects their customers value the price point of Walburga's grass-fed beef, which is more affordable than high-end grass-fed beef at your typical supermarket. I think people also feel good about doing something that supports the Abbey as well. I think it's more satisfying to know that the beef that you're getting, you know, you can see it. <laughs> if you come to the Abbey, you can see our cows on the hillside. You know where, it, you know, where it's been exactly. And um, you also know that you're supporting the nuns by buying that beef. The sisters at Walburga also eat the beef they produce. But they cut back during the Lenten season. And often they'll donate an animal or part of an animal to a family in need. Sister Maria will periodically hear from vegetarians or vegans who ask how the nuns can justify eating beef. The Catechism, after all, says Catholics have a moral duty to not cause animals to suffer or die needlessly. Farming has a real down-to-earth quality about it. When you're dealing hands-on with the animals and with, with the land, you get a real sense of it. I think farmers are usually not cruel people um, if they're actually dealing with animals themselves individually, then you don't want them to suffer and you don't want to cause unnecessary pain. And so for, for us, um, the sisters here, you know, on the one hand, it's difficult to raise beef because, you know, part of that involves slaughter. Um, at the same time, we also know our animals and we know what they're like when they're afraid. We know, you know, how to handle them gently so that, um, so that they're not caused unnecessary suffering, they're not caused unnecessary fear. 
Ultimately, Sister believes that good farming practices can be part of the Christian call to stewardship. Pope Francis talks about um, the little way of environmentalism in one of in, in Laudato Si, his encyclical Laudato Si. And to me, that's a really beautiful concept that it's not as if I personally can solve all the world's problems. Of course, I can't. But what I can do with God's help is to do little things. And for me, in my particular calling, one of the little things I'm called to do is run this little farm and try to be a good steward of God's creation. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Carl Bunderson. Hey guys, Christine here. Guess what? It's time for our taste test of the Impossible Burger. A quick note before we get started. Matt and I did our taste test outside of the office, but our recorder didn't cooperate. We recorded some of the tasting, and you'll hear a little bit in this segment, but we didn't include very much of it because, well, it's not great on the ears, and we love you listeners. So we regrouped in the DC office to talk about our taste test with a functioning microphone this time around. For the taste test, Matt and I ordered one Whopper and one Impossible Whopper from Burger King. We put them on identical plates, we unwrapped them, cut them in half, and then switched the plates up a little bit. The Whopper and the Impossible Whopper have identical toppings. Onions, lettuce, pickles, mayonnaise, and ketchup. And they're both on sesame seed buns. I mean, at first glance, they really did look identical, didn't they, Matt? Yeah, they. I think upon closer review, after I took my first bite, uh, I could tell the difference right away, visually. Uh, between a meat patty and a fake meat patty. Had you had a Whopper before we did the taste test? I've had many Whoppers before. I've been to Burger King in at least uh, three different countries. Would you say that the Whopper is one of your favorite fast food sandwiches? It's uh, it's not at the top of the list. So, like, if you're driving up from, say, Virginia to, like, New Jersey or something, you're going to be stopping at a rest stop with a Burger King in it? No, not necessarily. But, you know, if I if I find myself um, uh, at the drive-thru at the Burger King and there's no stacker on the menu and there's no Big King on the menu, then, yeah, I would definitely I would go for the Whopper. Me, on the other hand, I have never had a Whopper before today, and... I had never had an Impossible Burger from any company, Burger King or otherwise, before today. And uh, I gotta say, my experience with the taste test was quite unnerving. I took a bite into my first burger and I legitimately did not know what I was eating. I guess I'll try this one first. Based on looks and taste, I honestly don't know what I'm eating. It mostly just tastes like mayonnaise, to be honest, right now. And bun. Which I, is, I mean, I'm not complaining, but this is just... This is an odd situation, so I guess I should try a bite of the other burger as well. I don't know if that's a ringing endorsement or not, but... My first bite turned out to be of the Impossible Whopper. And guys, I honestly thought I was eating beef. I honestly couldn't figure out what I was eating until the second-to-last bite of the regular Whopper when I could tell, oh yeah, that's definitely beef. Matt's first bite was also of the Impossible Whopper. And uh, I could tell the difference right away. I think that it's a convincing dupe for people who just aren't familiar with the product, which I wasn't. Uh, 
if someone gave you a burger at an event and didn't specify what kind of burger it was and it was an impossible burger, what would your reaction to that be? Do you think you could tell the difference if someone just handed you like a slider and were like, here you go? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I think um, uh, because I, I, yes, I was able to tell the difference right away, but I also knew that you know, half of it was going to be an impossible Whopper and half of it was going to be a real Whopper. So it was at least in the back of my head that there was a possibility there. Um, If that possibility was not there, uh, if I wasn't expecting it at all, um, I would like to think that I could tell the difference right away Mm -hmm. as a, you know, as a devoted carnivore. So the impossible Whopper could pass as beef for someone like me who just doesn't eat a lot of burgers. But technically, it's not beef. Does that mean it's appropriate for a day when Catholics abstain from meat? So I'm, I'm, this sounds like a cop-out. I'm honestly on the fence on this one. So on one hand, I totally get and agree with the argument that if you're trying to eat something that is supposed, inherently supposed to taste like meat, uh, but is not meat, um, you're, you're, you're doing it wrong. You're trying to cheat. You're trying to skirt, you know, you're probably trying to skirt the penance. But at the same time, having had this you know, half of an impossible Whopper and being able to tell the difference right away. Uh, by the by, the time I got to the end of it, you know, the fifth or sixth bite, it was kind of, it was slightly penitential to finish it off. I wouldn't say I like thoroughly enjoyed my impossible Whopper experience, but it wasn't a bad time. I think for someone like me who wouldn't normally be eating beef at a Burger King anyways, it could be a penance because I would want chicken fries. But like, if we're looking like big picture, like, Christ died for my sins, I can eat nothing. Like, like this just seems like such a petty, you know, kind of comparison. I took this question to Father Thomas Petrie. He's the academic dean and vice president of the Dominican House of Studies. He told me that because impossible burgers are not technically meat, you could make the argument that they are fair game during penitential fasts, like Fridays during Lent. But Father Petrie personally agreed with Matt. He said giving up meat but choosing to eat something that tastes like meat seems like a technicality to get out of the spirit of the penance. You want to go with the letter of the law, but I think also, you know, go with the spirit of the law. This, you know, Lent, you know, yeah, Lent seems really long, but in reality, it's only a small part of the year. And, um, for, you know, there, there have been many Catholics that have gone before us who have gone through much more arduous fasts and penances. I think we're pretty meh on the Impossible Burger. I think it's a fair conclusion. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, it's... I feel like Matt's never going to eat one ever again. Um, Willingly. Yeah, no, not willingly. Not willingly. Um, Even on a Friday, I'll just go with a fish sandwich or something. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. We're produced and edited by Kate Oliveira and Jonah McKeone. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. Special thanks this week to all of our guests, especially Matt Hadro, for enduring the Impossible Burger with me. I'm Christine Roussel, D.C. correspondent for Catholic News Agency. Thank you for listening to CNA Newsroom, and I hope you have a wonderful week. May God bless you.